This is Jason Cast. This is Scott Nearman. We are MP Local, where we want you to know that you are not alone. I tell you what, Scott, this business is not easy. It has its own unique challenges. This is not about bottom line only. This is not about profit only. We're about mission and changing communities in the nonprofit world. And that is why we started this podcast called NP Local. All right, all right, all right. Olympi local listeners, welcome where we want you to know you are not alone. This is Jason Cass. And this is Scott Nearman. And we are here from you. Scott, it's been a while since we've been back, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. What do you got for us today? Looking forward to talking about strategic planning. Does that sound riveting? It sounds really riveting, but it's important, <laughs> and we promise what we do here to make it interesting for you. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so you're talking about process. Go ahead. Yeah, so it's very important, you know, for any organization, as you know, in business as well. But um, um, I'm actually working on a strategic plan with an organization now. I'm also working on a strategic plan with the organization that is my day job. And so it's very important that businesses do this. Um, we just talked about mission and vision and core values and things like that. Um, and really, the next step is to put that into action, right? Because a mission doesn't mean anything if it's just written on paper. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Sometimes this is the hardest part, right? Well, yeah, yeah. And the hard part is even after you invest the time to develop such a plan is to not just let it sit on the office shelf, right? To actually put it to work, to check in on it on a quarterly basis or more, uh, to have the executive director following up, to provide the board updates, because that's how we really put the mission into action. And that's what mm-hmm. it's all about. Yes. I had uh, professors in uh, in graduate school, and they were practitioners. They were not PhDs, and they were some of the best professors. And they said uh, it was a public administration school, and so they said the job of a public administrator is to do. So when you're in the nonprofit or public sector, your job is to do something. Correct. You're not just sitting back on that bureaucrat salary. All right. Correct. You're supposed to do something. Uh, same thing with nonprofits. The donors are funding the organization and the mission to do something. Right. So sometimes we think sometimes that we need to be the shining example of leadership all the time. And while that's a true, I mean, you want people to understand that you're the leader. We sometimes forget what our job is. Sometimes we get involved and immersed in the organization so much that we're doing things that we should be delegating to other people. And I say that because when it comes to process and when it comes to um, action, as you say, which I really like, a lot of people grade their day based on how much activity they do with no action. And that's really important. Now, one of the things that I think uh, that it comes to this is hiring try. Uh, Hiring, training, and and uh, holding accountable. Those are sure. things. The three things that I've always believed is leadership, and sometimes that's what the the people at the top. And when I say that, because we only have this chain of reference and and uh, command in our brain, that that those people at the top sometimes mistaken themselves that they shouldn't necessarily be in the kitchen working. Maybe they can be because it's all volunteer and they need it. But what I'm saying is that's not your day-to-day job is to figure those processes. It's to figure those processes out and have somebody else work them. I want to state with one more thing when it comes to process. Sometimes think of it this way outside of your organization. Think of it this way. Subway does not go hire the best Subway or, or sandwich artists. They don't go hire people who can make the best Subway sandwich. You know what they do? 
They create a process and they hire people who will follow that process. That's why if you've got a master's degree in biology, you're not going to make it as a subway person. You have too much experience. You're going to ask too many questions other than just do the process. There's a reason why when we look at these large organizations that are built on process, usually operate with people that, that make $10 to $15 an hour. Because you don't need somebody great. You need somebody to follow the process that you create. I wanted to just state that because I'm real big on process out there. Well, process is important. And I, uh, I remember sending a text to a coworker just last week. I said, uh, it's, you know, it's Friday evening or Friday afternoon, but I feel like I, another process conversation coming next week, you know? And so you're, you're constantly refining those processes. Training. And that's exactly like a strategic plan, right? You're, mm-hmm. You constantly need to be evaluating it, checking in, and yes, certainly it's a team effort. Um, now, why don't the- you think that they do it? Why don't you think that heads of organizations don't want to necessarily sometimes train or hold people accountable to those processes? Well, I think um, there's a lot of challenges for a nonprofit director, and most of them are understaffed across the country. Ooh, if you're fortunate well enough to be in a large organization, um, you know, these long-standing groups, Salvation Army, Red Cross, um, you know, I dare say folks in certain departments in those organizations feel like there's not enough money to work with or not enough uh, human resources to work with. But even then, they're long enough and big enough that they have some established processes, as you point out. Um, so they already have a plan that they're working under that somebody at a higher level has developed. But when you're running a smaller to medium-sized organization, you're in the trenches. Mm-hmm. You're the general with the troops mm-hmm. doing, taking action every mm-hmm. day, mm-hmm. hopefully meaningful action, moving that ball forward. But you also have to sometimes remove yourself and think from that bird's eye perspective um, so that you can actually uh, cast that vision and keep people inspired and uh, report to the board. Sometimes we think that people don't want to be held accountable, Scott. Sometimes we think, well, if I go and bother that person or I can critique, uh, critique that person in their position, that may be I need them to show up tomorrow. I need them to be in a good mood. I don't want them to see me as as passive aggressive and advertorial. But here's the deal. Most people want to be held accountable because most people know that there's expectations set upon them. But when they're not clear as to what's expected from them, that's where the stress comes from is, am I performing? Am I doing the things I'm supposed to? So actually, sometimes us as leaders, we will think that they don't want to be held accountable. And sometimes that's the very reason why they don't find their job very enjoyable is because we don't. Uh, My mentor told me one time, he said, Cass, 99% of the time, if you set expectations for somebody, they'll hit them. You just don't set expectations is the problem, Jason. That was what my mentor told me at that time. So love process. Well, and that's, and that's probably a whole nother podcast, right? The whole mm-hmm. human resource angle of things. But um, the part of a plan that is important too is those goals that come out of it. And so um, talk a little bit about the process here um, because those goals are going to have those targets mm-hmm. and accountability measures and who is to be accountable. So, Obviously, we've talked a lot about mission vision. We've talked about uh, board involvement, board development. Um, there's a lot of pre-work and background that, that uh, for perhaps a consultant needs to do to come in and facilitate that process. They need to understand your history, not just your mission. They need to know where the financials are, uh, understand the external environment, that situational analysis of, of, of internal and external uh, threats yes. and opportunities. And so we talk about that as a, the SWOT analysis. 
And some folks have created some newer, different um, versions of, of how to do a situational analysis, maybe dependent upon the type of organization. But kind of the longstanding tried and true is SWOT, S-W-O-T. Yep. And uh, it always, I don't know, reminds me of my grandfather swatting flies in his office. But or it's, hitting me. It's, it's S- my yeah. mom knocking the <laughs> shit right out of me. Yeah. So SWOT analysis actually stands for strengths and weaknesses, which are internal characteristics, opportunities and threats, which are external characteristics. Right. And so to facilitate that conversation, to have that conversation intentionally, carve out a half a day uh, with the right people in the room. You don't have to have 20 or 30 people. You just need a representational group of your constituency and um, have someone facilitate that. It's nice to hire a consultant to do that uh, so that someone, uh, the, the executive director can be uh, participatory in that process. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have one point of view which mm-hmm. is different maybe than the rest of the staff, which is certainly mm-hmm. different than the board. To allow them to participate, you need that external facilitator. And I know uh, organizations, if they're small, you know, maybe a board member is capable of doing that, maybe a former board member, um, maybe a, a local community leader that's done this sort of thing before would volunteer on a one-time basis. Or maybe, you, you know, find a few bucks and you, you pay somebody that actually knows your sector or your business or specific type of organization. And the consultant that employees are more prone to listen to. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I think... They'll listen to you as a leader, but it's good to get that initial push as to the why of we're doing it from somebody else sometimes. Well, and frankly, why do folks hire a consultant? Sometimes it's because uh, they need their board to listen Mm -hmm. and somebody else to say the same thing they've been saying for quite some time, or they need the employees to hear the same sort of principles from a different angle and a different perspective. And what I love about being a consultant is, first of all, uh, they can take my advice or leave it, but I'm really there to come alongside them and help them and facilitate and lead that conversation. Perhaps when there's a big issue or change at hand and there's a decision to be made, and again, that, that director needs to step back and be able to think about it while somebody else is working through that thought process with them. And even though you may find it unique, every one of the processes or the issues you have, probably nine out of 10 have the same thing, right? And so it's kind of like families, right? When we're raising our kids, we think sometimes that our kids are a certain way. And then you go talk to a bunch of friends and you're like, that's right. You and the wife leave, you know, or the the spouse you leave and going, okay, good. This happens to other people too. You know what I mean? It's that exact same tiny thing. And so sometimes having that consultant from the outside can definitely help there. I agree that. Um, But I do agree that it also gets them in line to understand. I think that other voice, we all have kids. Once again, I love going back to it that uh, played baseball, played softball, gymnastics, whatever it can be, and you know that you told your son or daughter that same thing over and over, and the first time the coach tells them to do it on the very first practice, they do it and they do it perfect. And you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> my goodness, I've been telling them that forever. That's the benefit of a coach. And and, and also something else we need to make a, a, a future um, podcast for is the difference between a mentor and a coach. Very, very yeah. important when you're looking at those two things to say, am I looking for a mentor or am I looking for a coach slash what we'll call consultant? Sometimes they can be the same thing. In my office, I have two of the, the same thing, but I also have other people who are strictly my coaches. Um, I'm taking strategies from them, but I'm taking understanding how and why from a mentor. We need to talk about that. Mm. Sorry to get off your own process. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, 
So when you get through the SWOT analysis, your situational analysis, understanding the lay of the land, it gets everyone on the same page, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever the human resources are, whatever the leadership issues or board issues might be, uh, everybody's theoretically on the same page after the SWOT analysis. And what you do with all that feedback, and when I do this, I mean, there are flip charts stuck to the walls, taped to the walls everywhere. Okay, so S for internal strengths I can only might, be, might be one or two pages. Um, and so you've got a lot of ideas that are generated from the 12 or 15 people in the room. And so you group those ideas together, and that may cross weaknesses, opportunities, threats, internal and external issues that, that the group has identified. And so you're grouping these together into some broad themes. And a good facilitator can do this fairly quickly with a, with a hardworking group. But when you group these together and you decide, okay, these two things are related issues, these three things group over here, and then you write those up a little bit clean, then the group needs to vote on, okay, what, what are the biggest things here that we need to focus on? Right. And that's how you start pulling um, goals out of the uh, analysis process. Okay, and, so and you're pulling together the feedback from others. Yeah. Okay. Pull that together right there. Cause I want to, I want to just stop for a second on what you're saying on some of the other podcasts, we talked about core values and mission. So at this point in time, when thinking about the process and what, what, what Scott is saying here is that you're already going to start to create that openness, that feeling of openness. You've already talked about who are the core values of us, which one are not, what should be our mission statement, right? So don't think that you're just jumping into this process and your employees are like, I'm not going to say anything. We've already reached that second, third level of, of uh, what we call a culture of accountability, a culture of trust, people able to speak their own mind. So I want to keep that in mind because sometimes that sounds daunting, right? Trying to get yeah. people to understand. And I like how you themed that. I'm, uh, I'm big on this stuff as you and I talk about, and that's something that I'm taking away from this. So I like that. All right. Well, you know, let me just point out, I was, I was looking for it here in my notes, but there's an article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy and late 2019, October, November of 2019, about strategic planning. Mm -hmm. I'll try to find that and, and put that in our, uh, in our show notes here for the audience. But um, they talk about how boards, uh, board members may or may not be comfortable with that type of feedback setting. And so it's important to integrate into your um, action items into a board agenda on a monthly or quarterly basis, your regular meetings, something that you can throw out for discussion. Mm. Or something that is a learning point for the board so they can mm. talk about it. Otherwise, as the article points out, they're not exercising that muscle. Yeah, They're not used to providing. So, you know, if you're only going to do a strategic plan every three to five years, you need people in the room, especially if you're going to do it in a day or less, to be ready to provide that feedback. So if you have board members that are silent as a mouse sitting around that table month after month, quarter after quarter, and then all of a sudden it's a free-for-all feedback session – you may or may not get very much. Yeah, and so true. Ha having a culture that allows not just staff, but board to, to challenge, you know, I, I'll never forget some of my more challenging board meetings. And, and I can really, the ones that stress me out, even after 20 years, I, I can kind of count them on one hand. I can tell you exactly where I was. I can name the people in the room. I can talk about the issue at hand. Uh, and it's kind of funny that you remember that, but they were meetings that I wasn't prepared. I didn't count my votes in advance. I didn't order the agenda in a way that was a, a flow that would uh, encourage the board to understand where we were and why we could do this or that. Mm -hmm. Or it was, um, you know, maybe a debate over a legal or a technicality 
in policy. Um, but those times that I didn't count my votes or order that agenda or prepare the committee or the board member that was recommending a change or an action, if, if you don't do that in advance, and it's the same kind of thing. You know, you got to individually work with the board members and, and as a group allow them to exercise their their mind. You know, they're not just there to be yes people, right? We right. need their feedback. We need a diversity of opinion. You know, um, not to just point out one sex or the other, but women are really great at this because what they can do is they can get their, my wife and some of my friends is the sample group that we're judging from. They can always get us to do things that we probably don't want to do, but they make us think that it was our idea and that's how they get us to do it. Am I right, Scott? Does that work at your house that way as well? Right? This is what we're doing, right? This is what we're yeah. doing here. You're, you're approaching it the same way. The board does need the buy-in. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever, in some of your organizations you've been ever in, do you ever have meetings where all the board's there and you call all the staff in so that the staff gets to be on a close relationship with the board? You know, I actually believe very strongly because I remember what it was like uh, being an administrative assistant or being a lower level staff member and not being allowed to come to board meetings. Ah. I think it's very important. In fact, my team today, uh, each of them leads uh, different committees of the board or they're at least they're present for certain committee meetings mm -hmm. as well as all of them at the board meeting. Mm -hmm. and I think it becomes impractical when you become a team of six or eight or ten people. That's just not practical. Right. Uh, but definitely, um, while I may be the spokesperson for the organization and I may work with the chair on the agenda, um, we definitely uh, need staff in the room. We may, I may have a question. Uh, they may have something valuable to add. They may have a question that'll help better their understanding. And so I actually is do there any that. purpose meeting though, like not just a board meeting, like hey, on the second Wednesday of this month, not every month, we're going to all have an employee meeting to where they get to meet the board. I'm just curious. I don't know if that's a doable or not. Um, you know, yeah. I think uh, when I first. Uh, started in, in different roles. There were always uh, informal gatherings to mm -hmm. meet the board initially. And I would, as a director, try to make the rounds one-on-one -on -one and meet board members for coffee or lunch or breakfast, whatever worked for them. But given that, you know, some board members are retired and can do that and some are working full-time jobs, it depends sometimes on how that's big feasible. organization is. And yeah. Yeah. So yeah. right now it's really tough also. We just can't even get to work, let alone a meeting. Yeah, you know, a lot of this our, video stuff, right? A lot of this video stuff. Man, when I see people face-to-face, -face, I don't think I'm going to handshake them. I think it's just going to jump and hug them. Because at that point in time, we all got the vaccine, so it's okay, and I just miss them a lot. I just miss You're them a hugger? I didn't uh, know you were a hugger. Yeah, I'm a huge hugger. I'm a huge <laughs> hugger. You know, I, I'm a chest bumper. I'm a chest bumper. So when we talk about process, one other thing that to think about here, I always like looking things. You're really good at this, Scott, as to say, here's what we do. I'm a very high-level thinker as to if I can get myself to be motivated as to the reason why I should be doing this or how I should be doing this or what I should be doing, then it allows for me to create that motivation because I see that image in my head of where we need to go. One of the things that I think about is I look at large organizations and I say, did they get large and then create process? Or did they have processes and get large? Because we all know that answer. I mean, one out of a kajillion actually became millionaires overnight. And now they're like, oh, crap, how do we do this, right? We have to look at it and say to ourselves that how if we want to be large and what's large, 
Maybe your community is 2,000 people and your goal is to eradicate poverty in that town. So you have to have a team of eight people. That's a large organization in a town of 2,500, right? How do I get from three to 10 people? That's 10's a large organization. We're not talking McDonald's here or United Way. So think about that when we're trying to do that. If I want to get to there, I need processes and then I'll get to there. We're not going to create processes once we get to there. Very, very, very huge. So I think the, the strategic plan can guide process development it certainly is about setting goals and um, and how they're measured. And then you started the podcast with accountability. And I want to get to this last part here before okay. our time is up. It is up. Because when you write it up, that plan needs to include not only all the lay of the land, environmental stuff and history and mission, but it's got to come out with those tangible goals and who is responsible for them, mm. how they're going to be measured and by when. So if we're starting a plan January of 2021 – and it's going to be good through 2023 or 2025. Who is going to be responsible for leading that initiative? Not the only one doing it, but leading the board committee or leading volunteers or yeah. leading the team in that area and completing it by June 2023. Or the measuring is we're going to pull this report off of our financials or out of our uh, CRM database. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're going to know whether we met the goal. And that's, that's a very important part. And then to check in, right? Your regular mm -hmm. staff meetings or board meetings to have a check-in with that plan. I'll oh, conclude. Uh, I like it. I'll conclude with Peter Drucker. Remember, uh, we talked about this book here. Um, he loves Peter. Managing, Local listeners, he loves Peter. Peter Drucker was a smart management consultant, all right? Yeah, he, he was. Uh, I'm serious. That you always bring him up. That's what I'm saying. Kind of right. learning something here. He said, performance in the nonprofit institution must be planned, and this starts with mission. And then one asks, who are our constituencies and what are the results for each of them? There are many nonprofit constituencies, and they're varied depending on the type of organization you're in, right? We've mm -hmm. talked about that. So the first but toughest task of the nonprofit executive is to get all of these constituencies to agree on what the long-term goals of the institution are. Building around the long term is the only way to integrate all of these interests. So a lot of different people involved. Like um, you may or may not have a lot of staff or volunteers, uh, but having a plan is how you bring donors and, and attract people to that mission. And having a plan is how you train. That is one of the most important parts because we've done the work. We've got the core, uh, core values. We've got the mission. We've started to lay out the goals of what we want to do. We're laying out the culture. We've got this culture. Now we're going to start laying out process. And when we lay out process, which maybe it's next podcast, maybe it's another one, we need to learn to train. I want to, I want to follow up or I want to end with this question. It's not a question. It's a story. I apologize, local listeners. A CFO and a CEO were sitting around talking one day. And the CEO says to the CFO, he says, we need to train our people. And the CFO says, yeah, but what if we train them and they leave? And the CEO replies, yeah, what if we don't and they stay? Think about That's right. that. That's why training is so important. But you know what's more important? We are here for you to put that in your ear. And this has been MP Local Podcast, where I'm Jason Cass. I'm Scott Nearman. And we want you to know that you are not alone. We are out.